All right, I need you to tell me who would find this to be an acceptable banana to eat. You see that? See how, how brown that is? Everybody see that? You guys over here, you see that? Nice and brown. You guys are all freaks. You're all freaks. Because that is a nasty banana right there. Ugh. Okay, what about this? Um, I have another piece of fruit to show you there. What about that? I mean, you guys would, you say no to the, the apple, but yes to the banana? Oh my goodness, come on. Um, all right, how about that? You see the, see the fly on there? I, all right, by show of hands, who would say, yeah, that's no problem, I'd eat that? Somebody, I know there's got to be someone here that would say, yeah, I'd eat that. Anybody? Brave enough? Okay, I think I like you a little bit better. Okay, what about that? Who, who would just get around the moldy piece? Who would, who would still eat that? Anybody? Go around it. All right, what about the cheese? Nice, stinky, moldy cheese. You guys hungry? When's lunch? Yeah, that's pretty bad, right? Now, I mean, they were all pretty gross. That, though, by far is uh, the worst one right there. And uh, that's what we would probably focus in on the most and say that is the most disgusting, most putrid thing I've seen. Out of all those other options, that is the one I would avoid absolutely with, at all costs. I would not go anywhere near that. That's repulsive. It's making me sick, right? That's probably what we would say to that. And um, with all of that, all that you just saw, all that decaying, moldy food and fly-infested lunch meat, um, that's actually very often how we respond and, and how we look at um, specifically sexual sin, sins that involve sexuality. Um, we know that sexual sin is sin like any other sin, uh, but I think that we would all admit that sexual sin has kind of a separate, unique category in and of itself as far as uh, the degree of seriousness, the consequences that come from that type of sin. Uh, the damage can be more extensive than other types of sin. It's all sin. Before God, it's all sin. But there are certain things that carry with it uh, a weight that might not be in other examples of sin. And, and sexual sin is certainly in that category, but within the realm of sexual sin and, and sin and impurity with sexuality, if we are honest with ourselves, I think we would all come away with having to admit that there are certain examples within that realm under the umbrella of sexuality and the sin in those areas, that we would say, oh, that, that's not good, that's not right, but then there's a certain category within itself that most of the time we apply a whole different level of bad to. We escalate it above even the other examples of sexual sin. 
And that's the one that we say, oh, goodness, that's just absolutely repulsive. I don't even want to go anywhere near it. It makes me sick to my stomach. And then, though, compared to the other examples under sexuality and impurity there, we don't quite have as strong of a reaction or a response. You know what I'm talking about. Talking about homosexuality. That is the cheese most of the time in in our minds. The the horrible cheese that you see there on the picture, that's kind of how we react and what our response is in terms of homosexuality. We would, I would think, most of us uh, here would say, oh, well, um, people that that are involved in an illicit relationship, people that are having an affair on their spouse, uh, that's, that's not good, that's horrible, it's bad. But if we're honest, most of the time our response to that, our reaction towards something like that is not going to be as blatant, as pronounced as it would be toward that of homosexuality. Um, maybe there's a, a couple that we know that they're involved in uh, a relationship, they're shacking up, they're living together, and we wouldn't approve of that by any means, but it doesn't quite have the same reaction in our minds, in our thoughts, in our emotions maybe. Then there's the individual impurity that takes place so often, that, those private things the individual lust. And that doesn't get talked about nearly as much as as it should. And that one, that area, gets very easily dismissed and condoned because, after all, it's, it's just me. I'm not actually hurting anyone, right? All of these categories... Extramarital relationship, premarital relationship, individual lust in the form of pornography and other related things, homosexuality. All of these areas of impurity and immorality within sexuality, they're hard to talk about. They're awkward. They're uncomfortable. And yet, they are at the forefront of everything we see in our society and our culture. Wouldn't you agree with that? Everywhere you turn, there is some form of that push and, and those examples that I shared. And of course, right now, the dominant one, and it has been for the last 10 or 12 years, uh, is that of homosexuality. Um, the Uh, Transgender issues now have have kind of risen to the forefront along with that that whole uh, issue. And so what we have now before us is something that before 10 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, we didn't really see in the church, as in the church overall. And that is a reevaluating and a questioning of whether or not such things are actually sinful. Whether or not such things are actually really anti-God and unbiblical. I mean, are they really? There's revisionist theology. 
revisionist doctrine, kind of like revisionist history, that's very much active within the current church, especially in the Western church, where you can read article and article after article and hear um, podcast after podcast and message after message where even prominent, historically conservative theological pastors and churches have now buckled or are buckling to the pressure of culture, and they're saying, well, maybe we need to take another look at this. Maybe what we've always said from the Bible as clearly speaking out against improper sexuality, maybe that's not truly the case. Maybe that was limited to a certain culture and a specific context. Maybe that's not what God really meant. And so now what before would be a no-brainer and a given for the church of Jesus has been allowed to be up for debate in all those categories. Maybe it's okay if people really love each other, they're really committed. I mean, is marriage really that big of a deal? And you know what? Maybe because of the circumstances and the pressure within that marriage that we don't know about, I mean, who are we to judge the actions of those people? Maybe, maybe God actually led them to leave their spouse and go and find the one he has for them. And as far as this thing of pornography, I mean, maybe it's just the normal, human, healthy response to their own sexuality that that God has given all of us after all. It's the biological reaction. We're living in very difficult days. But the one thing that we have to remember, church, is no matter what difficulty we face or what new debate rises, what is called into question by society, by culture, or even by the church, God's word doesn't change. His standard doesn't change. And it's not up for questioning or debate or reworking. God's standard is absolute as he is absolutely sovereign. We need to remember that. And as our culture around us, as society continues to push the envelope and continues to push the boundary and violate boundary after boundary, and as we see it even seep into the current church, it becomes that much more necessary for us here at this church Even if all other churches go a completely different direction, it's very important that we understand what God has to say about all of these issues and other issues that come up that we haven't even addressed yet, which will happen. If the Lord Jesus tarries and does not come for his church, then I guarantee you, as we go through the years, we will see even what we're seeing now be eclipsed by new wickedness. The Bible's clear on that. That's what's going to happen. That people will invent new ways of sinning. So we need to be very clear and constantly come back to what God has made very clear on this and every subject. We need to remind ourselves some things. And since homosexuality is very much at the forefront of all the discussions and, and what society is 
constantly promoting and applauding and cheering on. You know, I, I think of something that my pastor growing up said, and this was before the homosexual agenda and the homosexual movement uh, was gaining traction and gaining steam. I mean, it was starting to become a little bit more accepted, but it was still very much a controversial thing. It was still very much taboo for the most part, but it was kind of starting to be talked about and to be seen and to be a little bit more accepted. It was the late 80s, may have even been 90. I was in elementary and uh, I remember my pastor, I was old enough to be in the service, and my pastor at the time, Wayne Easter at Mount Tabor Baptist, his message was on the trend of culture, and it was specifically about the homosexual platform, the homosexual agenda. And I don't remember everything he said, but I will never forget the one statement that he said to open up his message. He said, beloved, that's how he always addressed the church, beloved, If God meant for homosexuality to be something we would accept, he would have made it Adam and Steve. But he didn't. He made it Adam and Eve. You don't find that funny? Wow. (laughs) Thanks for the courtesy laugh. I remember, like, looking at my dad and mom. It's like, huh. So we went home, and that was a nice... Wonderful, awkward conversation for my dad, I guarantee you. I remember we talked all about it. And I mean, my eyes probably were like big and getting bigger and getting bigger. And I was probably just like staring off into space for a while. I I was a very sheltered kid. And so hearing that conversation about what that was referring to, it's like, wow. But you know what? My dad had that conversation. Parents, have those conversations with your children. As awkward as it might be. As hard as it might be, as uncomfortable as it might be, when you see current trends and topics that are so pervasive in our culture that even when you protect them from those things in your home, realize that they're going to still be inundated with it, that it's such a, a current reality in our modern experience that even with you protecting and sheltering and shielding, there's no way truly to totally escape. And what you need to do as a godly mom and dad, grandparents, same for you, you need to take your children when, when it's appropriate. I mean, when you know that, that there's uh, a maturity there that can reason and accept at least somewhat of uh, the concepts that they need to be hearing and thinking through, take them with God's Word and with the power of the Spirit Help them navigate through what they're seeing and hearing and what they will see and hear. Don't let the world out there be the first people, the first group, the first entity that instructs your children on things such as this. Let it come from you through God's word by his spirit. And be courageous enough to do that, to engage your children. That's our job. Let's not let that be someone else's job because surely... If we farm that out, we will not be happy with the results. It will not go well. But what I really want us to understand, what I really want to make very clear to all of us and, and have us keep in mind, is that the problem of sexual immorality 
and the hideousness of that, the seriousness of it, is not by any stretch of the imagination limited to homosexuality. And if we're not careful, we'll kind of treat it that way because it's kind of like that cheese that you see. On just a human level, an emotional level, out of the other areas, it has the most potential to cause a very strong personal, physical, mental, emotional reaction in us. But that doesn't mean that it is any more serious or vile to God than anything else that we're going to be talking about. We need to be careful that we don't escalate that above all the other things to make those other areas of sexual immorality and sin appear less sinful. It's all in the same boat. It's all sin, and it's all a very specific damaging sin. It's all within a category of sin that has a potential of causing mass destruction individually, in families, in communities, and in our whole society. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. The Apostle Paul says, flee. Don't just sit with it. Don't think that it's maybe not as bad as it is. Don't condone it. Flee, escape, retreat from sexual immorality. And the word he uses there is the Greek word pornea. And that word is all-encompassing. That covers every aspect of sexual immorality. It covers fornication. It covers adultery. It covers pornography. That's where we get the word from. The root pornea is where we get pornography from. It covers homosexuality. It covers all things under the umbrella of sexual impurity, sexual immorality, sexual sin. It's all-encompassing. Flee from sexual immorality in all forms. Why? Why should we flee from it? Why should we not tolerate it in any shape or form? Why should we not sit with it and entertain it? Why should we just reject it outright? He tells us there's a specific seriousness with sexual sin that exceeds even other areas of sin that we can commit. Here's why. Every other sin outside of the sexual sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then the implication of that, the weight of that, is explained in the next verse. Or do you not know that your body, remember he's speaking to the church, he's speaking to Christians. Do you not know, saved one, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You ceased being your own when you committed your life to Christ. You became property of Jesus who shed his blood for you and you became the very temple of the living God. That's what he's saying here. For, verse 20, you were bought with a price. Your salvation, my salvation, the grace that we have, that we've received, the fact that we have been able to come out of the grave that held us before Christ, all of that was free to us, but it was not free, period. It cost Jesus his life. It cost Jesus his fellowship with his Father, where the Father actually turned away from his Son, all because of 
our sin being placed on him. We were bought with a price, the very life and the very blood of the Son of God. So the response to that is the way Paul ends this verse. So, or therefore, glorify, exalt, honor God in your body. This extends to specific areas that we need to honor God with through our body. Again, it's not just homosexuality that we need to address and that this applies to. Look what Hebrews 13.4 says. Let marriage be held in honor among all. We had a wedding here yesterday. I was privileged to be able to officiate that. Roy and Lisa, Roy Martin, Lisa Horn, now Lisa Martin. And what I loved about this couple is that it was clear through their counseling that I did with them and getting to know them. And it was very clear here yesterday as they went through the ceremony and to all who witnessed that, they truly held marriage and hold marriage in honor. That's a delight to see. And we need to make sure that that's what represents us, that that's true of us, that we hold marriage in high honor. And it's becoming increasingly important for that to be true of all who name the name of Christ because of how vast of a contrast there is in our culture that does not hold marriage in honor. We see that very prevalently. So let marriage be held in honor among all, and let, this is very important, let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's the the sexual relationship between husband and wife that is reserved for husband and wife, that's reserved for the marriage relationship. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. See, God, God is fair. He doesn't play favorites in any aspect, on any side of the equation. He's going to view our sin the same, and he's going to judge sin the same, and that definitely applies to the realm of sexual sin and sexual immorality. He's not going to look at the homosexual sin as wrong and clearly against his standards and and his principles and his design as that is, as vile as that is, he's not going to look at that and hold that up and hold that to a higher standard and then put more judgment on that type of behavior than he is on adultery. It's going to be a level playing field with God. Therefore, it needs to be a level playing field the way we respond to that, the way we think about it. This defiling of the marriage bed that will be judged, that means pre-marital sexual relationship and extra-marital sexual relationship. Both are a violation of what God has established as the only fitting, proper expression of human sexuality and of that relationship. Then it goes beyond that as well. It extends to the private individual life that may be You've heard or even said, used yourself the excuse, well, it's not hurting anyone. This action that I commit every now and then, my own 
lustful thoughts and imaginations and fantasies. It's not really hurting anybody. It's just me. It's in my head. What damage can it do? What's the problem, really? Well, Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus himself gives a very clear indictment on that. He says this, You have heard that it was said, and he's speaking to the Jews, he's speaking to people that have sat under the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. He says, You've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. In other words, just make sure that you don't actually physically sin in this way. Just make sure it's not obvious. Make sure that people don't see this happening. That's what you need to focus on. Focus on the outward. Make sure that the actions are right. It's all about the outward, is what they were saying. But I say to you, he's raising the bar, that everyone who looks at a woman, or this also applies women, women to men, okay? This is universal. It's not just something that's limited just to men. You could really say anyone that looks at anyone with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, parentheses him, in his heart. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus says, Yes, the physical is important, and yes, don't commit adultery, but you need to understand, he was saying to the original audience and to us today, the heart is equally as important, if not more so. That our our purity, our righteousness before God, it actually has a whole lot more to do with what's in here than what's outside. Jesus talked about that many times. So it's what comes out of a person that defiles them, what's already in there. The Bible talks about the heart being deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, beyond even weighing how wicked it is. The heart, the mind, the inner person is incredibly important to be evaluating and to be keeping in check and to be making sure it's in line with what God has set up and established. What this means for us, what we have to take away from these truths, these realities, something very important to keep in mind, and that's this. All sexual immorality in every form, every category, goes outside God's design, violates his standards, and offends his holiness. All of it. There's no exception. All sexual immorality does that. God has a very clear design and a desire and a purpose that he set up for human sexuality. The design is that it would be within the realms of marriage, husband and wife, man and woman, period. And the purpose of that was actually bigger than them. It goes beyond the sexual intimacy itself. That the sexual relationship between husband and wife is actually meant to be a picture of the unity and the oneness between God and his people, specifically Christ and the church. That's the picture 
that's meant to be on display within the marriage relationship. So any variation of that is a violation of God's design and it's a blasphemy of God's beautiful, perfect purpose. We need to view it that way. But not only that, there's something practical that we have to keep in mind as well. And that's this. Sexual sin has a hunger that's never satisfied. You know, my, uh, my dad, Ed Chesley, he loves to eat. And I'm not telling you anything that those of you who don't know him don't already know and that he wouldn't say, yeah, that's true, can't deny it. He loves food. Like, he loves the entire experience. It's not just a meal to him. It's not just something he does because I'm hungry. It's not just something he does because he has to survive. I've got to eat to survive. No, it's an enriching experience for him. He will sit down at just about any meal, like he's not picky whatsoever, and he'll find something that he absolutely loves. So much so that uh, one time when Steve Davis, wonderful brother Steve Davis, my dad and Steve and Gene, they go, and my mom, they, they went way back. They served together at ABC. They had a great relationship for years. And one time, they were all out to dinner together. And uh, they were sitting around the table, and the food came. And my dad started eating his food, and he, he took a bite, and he was going, oh, man. Took another bite, and he was going, mmm, oh, mmm. And Steve looked at my dad and said, oh, shut up, Chesley, and just eat. Yep, my dad loves, loves to eat. And my kids have picked up on this. And a couple years ago, we were, I think, at the house, and my dad was over with us, and he, he, just, kept eating. <laughs> he just kept eating and eating. And my, my girl's eyes were just getting wider and wider, like, when's he going to stop? And so he left, and they went to bed. And the next morning, I think it was Addison, had a dream that she told us about that she dreamt that grandpa was over again and he was eating like, like normal. He was eating and he finished his plate and then he grabbed hers and he started eating hers. And when that was done, he got Aubrey's and he started eating Aubrey's food. Then Aiden, who was a baby at the time, he ate Aiden's baby food. When that was, was finished, there was nothing else. He cleaned out the refrigerator and the freezer and the cupboards When that was all gone, he started going through the trash. And they were all just like, Grandpa, stop. And he said, oh, I can't. I love to eat. I love to eat. And the dream progressed. And he went from there to eating every food in every house in the world. And the dream, the end of the dream was that there was no food left in the world that Grandpa ate the world. So they told Grandpa this, and he just laughed and laughed. We still laugh about it. We still talk about it. Uh, This was years ago. And, you know, the dream, as silly and unrealistic, slightly, as that is, man, that totally illustrates the reality of sexual sin. Sexual sin has this appetite that is just voracious, ravenous. And it's a hunger that is never satisfied. Once you start giving in to sexual sin, once you start committing it, it just inevitably leads to something else and something else. 
and you have to keep pushing the envelope for satisfaction. But it's like the Rolling Stone song. You can't get no satisfaction. No matter what you do, no matter what you try, it's never going to happen. You just keep needing more and more. And the other aspect of that is the more ends up getting more warped as well. Becomes more extreme. And we're seeing that on display in our society, in our culture. You know that there's legislation in at least California, if not other states, where people are actually pushing for pedophilia to be recognized as just another realm of human sexual expression and to be given the same societal, political acceptance as anything else. They want to add another letter to the, you know, LGBT. They want to add another letter to that. What? But that, but that's, see, that's the hideous nature of this monster known as sexual sin. That's why it's sin like other sin, and, and sin ultimately to God is at the same level of seriousness and severity. It all required Jesus to go to the cross. It all will be judged apart from Christ. But for us, for our human experience and reality, this aspect of sin carries with it far more seriousness and potential for damage than the other aspects do. That's why God makes it so clear in his word what the answer to that for us is. You know, we we often will wonder and think and give a lot of energy to what is God's will for my life? I mean, we do that, right? We, we want to know what is God's will for me? What does God's will involve? What does it include for my life? Well, there's a lot about the will of God that he has already made very clear that he's revealed to us for all of us generally in his word. One of them relates to this aspect of our sexuality. First Thessalonians 4.3 says this very clearly, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, in other words, your purity, your righteousness, your being set apart. That's the will of God for you. And specifically, it relates to this, that you abstain, totally forsake, reject, avoid, from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Verse 4, that each one of you, see, all of us, each of us, know how to control his own body, in other words, Worry about yourself. Make sure you're living the way you need to live. Don't pay as much attention to other people's lifestyles as you do your own. It's the whole plank eye concept in Matthew. You know, don't go and see a speck in your brother's eye and try to deal with that and tell them they need to get rid of it when you've got a two by four sticking out of yours. Look at your own life. Know how to control his own body. How? In holiness and honor. And here's a contrast that he provides. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles, which is a specific cultural way of uh, referring to the lost, to the unsaved, to those outside of Christ. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And what that means for us, church, is we need to remember within this whole conversation to not expect the unsaved to act like saved people. That's not going to do anyone any favors, and that's not what God calls us to do. 
That doesn't mean we say, oh, it's okay, you're fine. That's not what that means. But it means let's not expect the unsaved to not act like an unsaved person. So how do we respond to them? How do we engage the lost on this subject and and other subjects? Well, a good example is to look at Jesus with the woman at the well. It was masterful what he did there. He, He meets the woman at the well. He engages her right where she's at. He doesn't skirt around the issue in her life, her her immorality. He calls her on it after he says, go and find your husband. And she says, I I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, you're right, you don't. You've had five. And the person you're with, he's not even your husband. You're, You're outside of the law. You're in sin. He called her on it. But he didn't, after calling her on it, he didn't beat her down with it. He didn't say, and that's why I have nothing to do with you. And and he just went to berating her and scolding her. No, we don't see that. He called her on her sin, but he revealed himself as the answer for that sin. He showed himself as the need to address that and to remedy it. That's the pattern we need to follow. We need to Keep bringing people to Jesus. Keep reminding them and and letting them see for themselves their need of the Savior. It's grace and truth together. That's our response to those who do not know God. As far as believers, people who are professing to know Christ and to be part of his church, we see them exhibiting lifestyles that are clearly outside of God's design and desire and his will, things like this, sexual immorality, absolutely we have a responsibility to call them on it. The Bible says, let judgment begin with the house of God. We have a responsibility to one another to keep each other accountable for the sake and the cause of Christ, for his namesake. And we need to follow Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, where he heard about this vile example of sexual immorality that was happening in the church, the Corinthian church, where this man who was in the church professing to be a believer actually was having an ongoing affair with his stepmother. And everybody knew about it. And not only did they know about it, they actually were like saying, hey, that's, that's pretty cool. They were like, you're the man. And Paul was like, are you kidding me? Why haven't you already removed him from the body? Why haven't you removed him from the assembly? I don't need to think about this. I'm already telling you what my judgment is. Get him out. In fact, he says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But it wasn't just just for judgment, and, and it wasn't just being harsh, and it wasn't hateful why he said that. Because the point of that, he says at the end, that he may truly be saved or experience or, or be found to have salvation is actually literally how it, it reads. In other words, the goal of turning this one out from the church and just letting God do a work of judgment in him and burning away this horrible sin and flesh, the goal was restoration. The goal was reconciliation. That this one who was clearly living in a sinful way may finally and fully reject that and be restored to the body. That needs to be our response too, church. We need to be willing to have hard conversations and address hard issues as we see them and not allow or entertain 
sin in any expression, especially as it relates to the sexual sin. And here's the answer for how we forsake or abandon, flee sexual immorality and abstain from all that. Here's the only way we can do that. Here's the only ammunition we have and the only hope we have, any of us, from living a sanctified life as it relates to this, or any sin really for that matter. Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk, that's live by, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, give yourself over to the control of the Spirit. That's the only remedy we have, the only answer, the only hope we have of living a separate life from these things. It's not in our power, it's in the power of God in us. I want to share with you, as I finish up, I want to share with you an excerpt from an incredible book that I highly recommend. I think every believer, literally, should read this book. It's by Jackie Hill Perry. She is a woman who was, for years, um, a very blatant homosexual and in a very open lifestyle of that. And God saved her. She met Christ. He totally revolutionized her entire life. He invaded her life, as she will call it, and totally just immediately began the work of totally remaking her, taking away a desire that had been with her since she was a child. Totally took it away and gave her instead a desire for God, for his holiness and a love for him, and then led her to a man that she fell in love with and married and now has a family, and she goes around all over the country, and I think even internationally, telling her story. In fact, the subtitle is The Story of Who I Was and Who God Has Always Been. She tells the story that nothing is too difficult for God to break through, and that nothing is impossible for him to change in a life if we will yield to him. I want to share with you this excerpt, because while it's specifically about her struggle with homosexuality, it applies to every area of life, every area of sin, and specifically every area of sexual immorality that we've talked about today. Here's what she says. The struggle with homosexuality was a battle of faith. To give in to temptation would be to give in to unbelief. To decide that the body mattered more than God or that the pleasure of sin would sustain all that I am better than he. It was incredible how real and tangible and persistent they could be, the the temptations. But their power was an illusion. Jesus had already proven that temptation could be defeated. And he already promised to help me when I came to his throne of grace for it. It was up to me to believe him. Isn't that awesome? And that is exactly what is true for each of us. No matter where we might find ourselves in struggling with sexual temptation and sexual sin, or beyond that, any sin, the same that she discovered and that is true for Jackie Hill Perry is true for every believer. It becomes a question of faith. Do we believe God is enough 
for us to, to satisfy our deepest longing? And the answer is yes, he alone can. No one else, no thing can satisfy the way he does. And do we believe that his power, given to us by the Spirit of God, is enough to overcome even the greatest obstacle we find ourselves facing? That's the question before all of us. Before I pray, I realize this was a weighty, weighty subject and a weighty matter, but it's one that needed to be addressed. We, we can't, as the church, be silent on the hard issues just because they're uncomfortable, just because they're awkward. We've got to hit them head on because they're not going anywhere. These issues are going to be with us in society and culture for a long time. We need to remind ourselves what the Word of God says and stand on that. We also need to act on it as needed in our lives. So my first question to you that are here today, where are you with Jesus? You just heard what I read from Jackie Hill Perry's experience that that she found that the Lord Jesus was enough, that he is more powerful than her struggle, and that he's already given her the help that she needs. It's just up to her to receive it, to believe it. Where are you in that? Maybe you're here and... One of these struggles that we talked about today, maybe that's what you struggle with or you have. And no matter what you've tried, you haven't been able to kick it, beat it. My friend, no matter what you try to do in your own, the bad news is you're not going to be able to. It's going to be an endless spinning of your wheels. But the good news is there's one who's already beaten it, who's already defeated it, and who will give you the power you need to defeat it in and through him and by his spirit. That's Jesus. So if you've not at any point in your life committed your life to Jesus, where you've asked him to be the Savior and Lord of your life, where you've given him yourself and say, Jesus, I know you came here. You died on the cross for my sin. I need you in my life. I need you to take my life. Please save me, Jesus. If you've never done that, today is the day. He's waiting. He's ready. He's drawing you to himself already. That's why you're here. Is there anyone who would say, you nailed it. That's me, Pastor. Would you pray for me? My answer is yes, I would love to. But I need to know that that's you. Is there anybody who would say, yes, that's me. Just let me know by slipping up your hand. That's all you have to do. I'm not going to call you up here and parade you around. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you that you will, right now, this moment, today, come to this Savior. Is there anybody who would say, that's me? All right, here's a harder question, really, because of our pride and what we come back to uh, so often, which is, oh, well, I've been saved so long, and I, I know the right answers, and I'm part of the church, and so this, this wall comes up. It's hard for us to be vulnerable, but I'm going to give you the chance anyway. Is there any of you who would say, you don't have to zero in on any particular issue right now. If you want to talk to me about it further, I'm available. But is there anyone here that says, I'm a Christian, I know I'm saved, but man, one of those areas that you've talked about, whether that's sex before marriage, sex in addition to my husband or my wife outside of them, or struggle with pornography privately, homosexuality, one of those areas you'd say, you know what, that's me, I struggle with that. This is an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing issue for me. Would you please pray for me? I don't have to know the specifics. 
All I need to know is that you want prayer for God to come alongside of you and for you to yield to his power that is already yours in Christ. Anybody willing to say, pray for me? That's me. I need prayer. Anybody at all? I know it takes guts, but please understand, you will receive no judgment from this pastor. No judgment whatsoever. Anybody? Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. Amen. Appreciate your courage. Amen. Anybody else? Pray for me, Pastor. This is a struggle of mine. Okay, let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, the power of it, the relevance of it, the fact that in it we find life, in it we find purpose, in it we find hope, in it we know from you what you expect from us, and in it we know the power that you have for us to live a life that we're called to live as those who are yours through your Son. Father, I thank you for speaking to the issues that we find in front of us and that it's nothing new. It doesn't take you by surprise. Your word tells us there's actually nothing new under the sun. What has been will be again. And so, Father, what we're seeing is something that you have long instructed us on and and given us what we need to be prepared for and how to address this, how to combat this, how to live in light of what we are inundated with around us. Father, I pray for the ones here who said, yes, there is some area that you mentioned, one of those topics that we looked at under the umbrella of sexual immorality, sexual sin, that I struggle with, that I've, I've long struggled with. Father, first of all, thank you for their willingness to admit that. Thank you for their courage. Please honor their, their honesty before you. You already know about it. They're just agreeing with you that it's a problem, it's a struggle. Father, please come alongside them. Fill them with your spirit. Fill them with the power that they need, that they already have available to them. Help them to receive it, to embrace that power, to yield to your spirit's control. Help us all, Father, to be believers, to be a church that stands strong on your standards, on your principles, on your word, because it's unchanging and it's always what we need for an abundant life here and for a life that truly shows that we have eternal life. Help us in all of this, I pray, and help us to react and respond to others the way we need to, the way you would have us to. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.